0: Shut up and
1: sit down. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legends. Welcome to PopCraft, where we'll allow talk to you to screenplays behind your favorite films and TV shows. I'm your host, Carl Albert. Today we're doing something a little different because it is Thanksgiving week and uh, personal events in my life made it so that I had to rapidly scramble to throw together an episode so you're getting this half-baked episode on the show I've been obsessing over the last week and getting everyone I know and their grandmas to watch the Wheel of Time and so I'm sitting here today on this family holiday with a couple of my family members, the two uh, red-headed eel. I have uh, Luke and Catherine together to discuss the Wheel of Time.
2: How's it going, everybody?
0: Hey! Also, don't forget Pegs. She's a
2: sweetheart.
1: She She's a sweetheart who hates people. Oh, I love Peggy, but she looks like a little alien she's dog.
0: She's through. my little um, goblin dog. So just she in is case a little you goblin hear, dog. You know, or trollic
1: <laughs> dog, uh, if we're staying appropriately on fandom. Um, she is a
0: killer. She is a killer. Yeah. I don't,
2: know. I don't see any horns, but you never know.
1: I think she might be grown them removed some I when there. she was a puppy. So... Just to let everyone know, there will not be any spoilers for the Wheel of Time book series. I'm the only one, actually, of my siblings who's read the book series, but there will be spoilers for the first three episodes, so if you've not seen the first three episodes, check them out on Amazon Prime, and by the time this comes out, episode four will be released. We have not seen it, because we are not living in the future, Uh, so we uh, will only be covering the first three episodes, and this will be a little more casual than my usual PopCraft episode, but hopefully you'll still get some entertainment and some craft out of it. That said, let's jump right in and uh Luke, you're the most recent person to watch it. What are what are your general thoughts on the first 3 episodes?
2: Yeah, I'm a big fan. You know, it's it's following this line of now sort of more mature fantasy series coming out on Amazon's uh streaming TV services and I, I love it. Uh, interesting world that they're already building and sort of kind of give you a general overlay, then tease more out as you go along. Really neat cast of characters and just, uh, you know, your classic sort of fantasy conflict filled with adventure and mystery and magic and monsters. What more can you ask for?
1: I do have a question, actually, that, made, that sparked a question in my brain, which was the first book, especially The Eye of the World. And I think in the first few episodes, you can really see there was a major influence from Lord of the Rings and on a very like superficial level, but even just into the basic like fighting a dark force, sort of pseudo chosen one, Lord of the Rings having a chosen one is debatable, but having to flee their farm village, being chased mm-hmm. by dark, malevolent dark forces, monsters, that sort of thing. Getting to a haunted place where they confront a dark, evil creature and in the book, it was sort of like you, that's how you had to get published at the time of its release. Uh, it was very much an, a way to draw on a commercial audience. Nowadays, that's not so much an issue. Um, and in TV and film, I don't think that's an issue, certainly. If anything, I imagine they'd want you to be more like Game of Thrones. But I'm curious, did you pick up on the similarities to Lord of the Rings when you were first watching the first few episodes? And, you know, what? What? how did you interact with that? Like, did that bother you at all? Were you like, uh, this kind of feels too familiar to me or like... What was your impression uh, on Wheel of Time's oh relationship with Lord of the Rings?
2: No, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think it was, like, overtly, like, Lord of the Rings-esque. You know, I think this sense of, like, a sort of uh, evil, omnipotent being with his monster army bringing an apocalyptic war, like, obviously is sort of this trope established by Lord of the Rings. But I think fundamentally the story and, more mm. importantly, the characters we follow, you know, travel different paths. Um, than than the Lord of the Rings characters. I think you can can obviously draw a lot of inspiration and parallels from Wheel of Time to Lord of the Rings. Uh, I mean, from Lord of the Rings to Wheel of Time, but I'd say fundamentally that didn't stand out to me so much, and it certainly didn't detract from how much I was enjoying the show.
0: So I think it should be said that the context is there, because Carl and Luke know this, but you, the listener, do not... I am also a massive fantasy nerd. I lean a lot more towards sort of urban and modern fantasy, though. But a lot of books on my bookshelves. A lot of books on my bookshelves. And many people are surprised that I have not read the Wheel of Time series. I think part of it was that uh, I heard from a lot of my friends either, Oh, it's great. I love it. But acknowledging some of the aspects we now see as problematic... Or it was recommended to me by a boyfriend who was not quite as much of a reader as I was and was like, oh no, it's really great, and I'd already pushed myself through one too many gemmels to like really feel motivated to pick it up. I never read the books, and I'm regretting that a little bit now, um, but it's kind of fun to to come into the TV show for once completely ignorant, which is rare, <laughs> but it definitely... Definitely had some Lord of the Rings overtones to me while Luke was talking and I popped up my phone and looked to see what year the first book was published and I was really surprised it was 1990 because I had for some reason had it in my head that these books were older and that this was really sort of first generation modern high fantasy. I kind of put Tolkien in his own category as sort of like grandpappy proto high fantasy originator from whence all came, at least in the English language ironically, given his linguistic tendencies. But honestly, I'm not surprised. Even coming out in 1990, knowing what I know about the author and the space in 1990, which was shortly before the first time I went to the grown-up section of the bookstore and picked up a novel in the sci-fi fantasy section, not only was this, as Carl said, really sort of a commercial expectation and demand, but I think a lot of it reflected the authors that were being published at the time, and they're kind of at the tail end of that generation that like really fetishize, fetishized their parents and the so-called Grace generation. Oops! And that sound means it's almost time for me to take the pumpkin pies out of the oven. But yeah, but these, these authors have this real connection. Either they fought in a war themselves, or far more frequently, their father did. And so they have this mythos of particularly if they're American, of empire, yet little man democracy, yet warrior and everything. And I found that in the fantasy space, uh, high fantasy novels published sort of late 60s to evidently 1990, but yeah, I'd say early 90s, there is a certain type of author, almost always, but not always, always, a man who just clearly wants something for himself that he didn't ever quite get so when he writes his epic story and they're always epic like you get very specific tropes which doesn't mean they're bad there's that that exists for a reason no,
1: they're definitely tropes and i think that when you're discussing wheel of time without getting into too many spoilers because we're only three episodes in it's a show and a book series that doesn't isn't scared of the tropes it doesn't stray away from the tropes so much as it does try to develop them and make them you know, maybe more nuanced, and, Mm. you know, it's not like Game of Thrones I was talking about with you last night, Catherine, where it's not, like, constantly subverting the tropes and being, like, what if the chosen one was actually, like, an imperialistic, like, conqueror who's going to kill all your people, or blah, blah, blah. Mm. I mean, there's a little bit of that in Wheel of Time, but, you know, it's much more, like, what would it actually be like to be a chosen one? You know, what would that pressure feel like? And then... How would magic interact with society at large and you know, what would the stoic warrior actually be like would they have suicidal tendencies? Because they have a tragic past that sort of thing and my sister's now glowering at me
0: Just one the response I had last night is there are certain things that feel overdone or overly tropey now And if you keep them in the context of if this is part of the originating generation of a particular movement or genre then they were fresh and new at their time and the only reason we see them everywhere now is because they were done really well once upon a time but the other number two thing is, i really do have to get the pie out of the oven feel free to continue Pause talking for
2: pie wait can i yeah i mean i think something that i want to say is there's this central theme around human agency that feels very distinct to wheel of time that i think in a story like lord of the rings it's just sort of for taken for granted that these characters have choices and they have the Capacity to make or make, you know, not make these choices and those will ultimately dictate the outcome of the story. And Wheel of Time, obviously around sort of the central concept entitled the story, there's this wheel of time or sort of greater divine power that shapes, you know, the events of history and reality and characters are having to face whether or not, you know, their choices are their own. And whether or not they do have power and control over their lives, the situations in the world they find themselves in. And I think that's something really interesting that not a lot of stories grapple with, right? We're used to having this main character that's, you know, perhaps they're destined, but ultimately they exercise power and will over the outcome of the story in this case we're sort of left to question that but so are the characters and we get to see them navigate that issue and i think you know early on in the series we've we've started to see that just a little bit but i'm excited to see how that plays out because it really seems like the the more fundamental component uh, of the story so far that's not
1: something that i've seen a lot of non-book readers immediately pick up on and i'm all over the internet discussion about this because that is kind of the main crux of the wheel of time is the question of like can you have free will if history is endlessly repeating itself like how much of your actions are preordained especially if there's a prophecy involved you know what does that do to the individual psychologically if they think that they're destined for something whether it's good or bad or both right Uh, that absolutely is uh i I think they haven't developed it as much as they will certainly because again like you said i it is sort of the central thesis and question of the wheel of time um as well as one of a balance as I think you're starting to see developed, and a lot of yin-yang energy uh, symbolism and that continues to get developed and yeah the question of sort of free will versus predestination and balance um, amidst extremes I think are, are really kind of the two main focus points of the Wheel of Time and I think it's really interesting that you already even just in the, the base premise of the show and the world picked up on that.
2: Yeah and if I may like I, I think we see this the most in Rand obviously especially early on um and and i think that sort of culminates itself in the latest episodes episode three this really interesting conversation between dana who i thought was a fascinating sort of side character and rand in which you know she's talking about how people are trapped within their homes their lives right sort of your you're, you know much of what you do is preordained and he's like well to hell with that you know like why do i have to do that you know and and you have uh Matt Cawthon who's struggling with these difficult questions of where do I go with this future and it's you know I I think we're already seeing a little bit once these characters are really confronted with the importance of their lives and their role in this greater war I think we're only going to see it more and I think that really distinguishes Wheel of a Time from a lot of these other fantasy shows and stories.
0: I thought it was really interesting watching the Wheel of Time TV show and having heard people a little bit talk about the books that it's, well, there's definitely religion in the books. The whole conflict between the light and the dark, and the wheel of time, and people's place, and the weaving none of it is really specifically tied to a specific religion in a way that's almost completely opposite from, like, say, A Song of Ice and Fire, aka Game of Thrones. Where even when you have overlapping prophecies and individuals who are those that are prophesized, like, it's very much tied to specific religions. And the Wheel of Time, despite having religious fanatics as characters, seems to have a very um, agnostic Quality to it, while still really wrestling with one of the most fundamental religious questions that sort of Western Christian society constantly has to deal with: predestination.
1: Uh, okay, first of all, if you hear weird sounds in the background, that's almost certainly Peggy May uh, shaking. That's her why I ass. mentioned her. And yeah, uh, it's it's worth noting. She's now she keeps going between Luke and Catherine, deciding who she's going to cuddle with, and she's currently loving pets from luke but no uh, what you're saying Catherine, is 100 percent right and it's interesting because you know i think wheel of time could be criticized for not developing religion a lot and you know because it's it's theoretically our world you know many thousands of years down the line and religion is clearly a very important part of our world and so sh- theoretically should be an important part of the story of the wheel of time but they have beliefs and that there are differing beliefs, but there isn't, like, as much organized religion as you'd expect to see. It is a very agnostic story where, like, they believe in some higher power, but they don't... And it's even, like, built into the world, actually, fundamentally, that there's a higher power and a higher evil.
0: Yeah, that's but, the thing. Lack of religion when there is objectively a higher power,
1: right? Which is what's interesting is I, that it's not there isn't that much organized religion built into it, and there there isn't you know they they have these sort of like traditions and stuff, but it doesn't look like
2: Catholicism or or you know strict, I'm not like so Sikhism. sure about that. At least in the first few episodes and glimpses of the story, we have these figures known as the white cloaks are not so subtly like christian inquisitors you know uh, of of an older like medieval age and the manner in which they literally burn you know these figures they view as like heretical or dangerous to the order of right things.
1: but i mean i've read 14 books in a prequel and i'm telling you how many like traditions you know do you see how many rituals how many things like that do you see you don't see these people like praying casually you don't see them you know undergoing a like point. the daily sort of ritual because i think that's a big part when you talk about organized religion is that the mundane aspects of it i think the closest we actually see in these first three episodes is the belting ceremony of the funerals where yeah they they light the so the lights which is good uh, actually more pagan than it is like traditionally christian yeah which is one of the really interesting things i think about the Wheel well Time. the name <laughs> uh right exactly um I mean, a lot of Wheel of Time is, if you look at the names, are just, like, slightly, like, real-world words, like, slightly twisted around. Like, Aes Sedai are, like, the Aoshi, you know, which is just, like, the Irish word for fairies, basically. And there's loads of stuff like that. But anyway, the Eastern sort of influence is, is very clear and very obvious, I think, especially as the series goes on. But you also then have the, like, underlying, like, good versus evil, light and dark of kind of westernized christian mythologies that actually does go back to the east and to um a song of ice and fire has this influence as well uh with zoroastrian zoroastrianism thank you zoroastrianism there is this sort of dichotomy of good and evil but there is also then the question of balance which is not a topic i think we as westerners are very good at handling and when we do talk about it, it tends to be in this sort of like politicized, not like actually addressing, you know, the larger moral and ethical questions of the, the notion of centrism. I think in the U.S. is not necessarily tied to the idea of balance within Eastern sort of religious practices and beliefs.
0: Well, there's a simple answer for that. How did that. we
1: get here? These are some of the questions that the series Carl asks Carl is
0: extemporaneizing you. about the things he finds yes. most interesting on it, including the fact that it doesn't have the traditional modern Christian Western belief no, I mean, of that yeah, this, this is, is temporary and we're not coming back, so we can do what we need what right now. Obviously,
2: we're, we're, there's sort of these deeply spiritual undertones to the story and the central theme, as I mentioned. But there's this clear absence of like religious practices and behavior within the show. I, I don't think that absence, though, is necessarily super nota- notable in terms of, like, the ongoings and, like, you know, life and culture of the characters we witness in the show. I think more it's, it's you know, the story and the time is occupied, rather, by, like, the ongoing war and escape and events, you know, we're watching Well, it's, unfold. I
1: mean, it's certainly not...
2: You know, like, Crucial we, we don't get much look into daily life, let's just say, right? Yeah. Like, it's, you know, we get more traditional scenes, like tavern scenes, right? Like, in the first three episodes, two different, like, taverns are, like, essential. God, we're way off of where we originally... We if were you want to talk about something that's and stuff, more... in religion. Yeah. But, on
0: topic for your podcast in general, we could go back to the conversation we were having last night. Is it for Jean? Is it not for Jean? I That for was going to be
1: one of the questions I was going <laughs> to ask. So, you know what? We're going to roughly transition to that... Which is, him. in episode one, uh one of our main characters, in the heat of battle, he kind of goes berserker rage on a trollic, is spoilers. stabbing it. Yeah, I mean, th- this whole thing is spoilers, <laughs> so spoilers. Uh, and he then, like, turns around and axes his wife on accident, you know, in the heat of the moment, thinking she's a trollic. A big question and kind of conversation around this episode from every side of the community new fans and old uh is you know is this fridging and and how do you constitute fridging and Catherine and I were talking about this last night um and we both have thoughts on this and I'm curious to hear Luke's thoughts on it Catherine and I both came to the conclusion that this was not fridging I don't think it's fridging one because I think fridging as a term is used to refer to stories that are largely masculine to begin with we should also define fridging is when like Female characters are just killed for male development. And I mean, that's it. And so they exist literally to die for the male character. Well,
0: it's a little more specific than that. But yeah, we definitely need to define it. And I feel personally like frigging is when you have a female character who either has no contribution to the plot line or you have a new author. If it's like a comic book and this author has chosen to take a previously meaningful female character and reduce her status to the plot line, she is killed overwhelmingly in a violent and often sexual manner but definitely in a gratuitously violent way and the entire purpose is for her death to motivate a male character usually a love interest but not always sometimes it's a sibling or a best friend or something and it's a male character onward to greatness and it is the impetus for him to begin and go on or double down on his you know heroic journey and I think that those various aspects of it are all necessary and come together. Of Essentially, you take a female character who, if she really is not important to the plot, then doesn't need to exist at all. and Or she is, and you're totally negating everything about her by just killing her solely to motivate a male character. And not just motivate the male character, but that is the reason why the character then becomes a hero. Ultimately, fridging is, from a plot perspective, a positive act, when inherently the action that it's in there, if you look at it from a real-world perspective, is heavily negative. And that's why it's, in general, a bad thing to do. It's lazy plot writing that you're saying bad things happening to women is actually good because it gives us heroes. But the reality also is, is that sometimes loved ones die, sometimes women die, and there are times where just because a female love interest dies is not necessarily fridging, which, back to you right this
2: this sounds more like than the latter than the former
1: so for me a big part of fridging that what i was getting to that what makes it fridging is it's in a largely masculine story where men are all the main characters or at least the vast majority of main characters as opposed to real time where the cast is roughly you know 50 50 male female and we'll see if they get into non-binary and trans individuals beyond just cisgendered uh main characters but that it's just not a show where, like, women are not represented. Like, they are. A variety of women have been and will continue to be represented. So, Layla dying for Perrin's arc, it is literally a woman dying for a man's arc.
0: I I, I but, feel like that's that's too simplistic, and I think some of this may be the gender divide between us. Because I've definitely read and seen, you know, TVs, movies, books, comic books, where you know, there is the girl who's different, giant finger quotes you can't see on a podcast, or like, you know, not one of those girls, or you've got the heroic girls, and then you have this side character, who is a woman, who then is fridged, because for some reason, the author just did not like that type of person, and usually that's the one that's the most slut-shamey, because fridging doesn't always have that, but sometimes it has that, so it's not always a masculine arc, but when women are fridged, That character, at least, is almost always done in an incredibly misogynistic and sexist way. Oftentimes, yes, it is a masculine story, and that's why the female character is seen as disposable, but sometimes it's a story that technically has gender parity. But that the type of women characters that are shown do not have the breadth of emotional and psychological diversity that the male characters have. Or the male characters are one note, too, and they're just seen as, like, better. Or that the women characters have to be masculine to be good. And honestly, that's part of the reason why I hadn't read the stories is because I was told that's part of what happens is that I was – and I don't know because I haven't read the books, so it might not be true – but I was given the impression that in the books, in the Wheel of Time, there are women heroes and important women characters, but they were either masculinized or they were deliberately desexualized. And when they did have a sexualized aspect, it was fetishized, brought up was like the eyes to die are, you know, supposed to have timeless looking faces, with no definition of what that is. And that inherently the one they are either Miss or they Deliberately don't sleep with their warders, or they're eyed Sedai, and they keep harems, and all of that is just kind of problematic.
1: I I think I theft, there there are but... nuances to it. Like I I if you actually look at the Wheel of Time fandom, it's more diverse than you would necessarily expect, and honestly, that I expected going into. Some of the biggest
0: fans I've met are women authors who I adore, who are incredible feminists, and they're like, I love this. I just acknowledge that there's problems, and well, that's that, cool. That's, we all have works like that. What we I was going to say like is that.
1: that, like, there are definitely problems that when you look at it in sort of a modern critical lens, you're like, that has an age well. Like, that definitely was written well, by an an older dude, straight dude, you know, in the 90s. But this was just in regards
0: to Phrygene. It it can technically have gender parity, at least on the surface, but it can be just be that the the author, because of their own biases, it's not necessarily a male author, can be like, oh yeah, a certain type of woman is sacrificable for the rise of the hero.
1: You know, I I think this kind of ties into, in some respects, what seems to be sort of a theme building for this episode which is that like tropes are not inherently bad or what we think of as tropes are not inherently bad if you like handle them with like nuance and um, emotional like care and 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 thought cuz you know th- this is again like you and I coming fr- at this from different perspectives both kind of decided that this wasn't a case of fridging even though like this is a male character killing his wife which starts his whole arc and that's like the simplest terms and you hear that like and if you heard that Roughly, like I did, you know, months ago when it leaked, I was like, oh, that's kind of gross. Yeah. But then you see it played out and you're like, you kind of see the nuances and you see the tragedy of it. And you also then see all of like the, the women around him who were given their own like depth and different personalities I mean, and stuff. And
0: I understand and even to a certain extent I agree with the people I've seen who've commented who are like, oh crap, you introduced this really great character and then you immediately killed her. And the other people who are...
2: We, oui, we... Oui. Honestly, got jack shit about her character. I actually think, by and large, this story has not been played out very well or much at all. Even Perrin's character, we don't know much about. Well, yeah, and that's... we haven't gotten really any. He's depth a quieter to character. That's... I, guess... I disagree but, with that. But even those introspective moments, like the dream, they are either consumed by his interaction with the wolves, which is so far just like a very tenuous, like fearful curiosity, or. It's, you know, the trauma and horror of what happened with his wife. In which case, the moments between the two of them were very brief, did not include much detail about, like, their relationship. Like, there seemed like there was a tension between them. We're definitely gonna get get hashed out. Right. We're gonna get that explained. But, But up to this point, he's just, like, haunted by guilt. And even with regards to that, not much is happening because of that. And that's right? like, literally why I think like, it's not for Jake. It's on. not
0: propelling him to glory, therefore, like, it's not for He's frigid. by
2: far the, right. the least developed thing. and least fleshed out of sort of the four central characters, which, like, you know, has been made his story way less appealing or interesting.
1: This, I think, ties into a lot of the discussion around Paul in Dune Part One, which is I think you're reacting to Perrin that way because Perrin is the least active of the characters and is a very introspective character and a lot of what's happening to him you don't actually like he doesn't express well it's a lot of interpreting kind of what's going on and like in the books you get his inner thoughts and i actually parent is not one of my favorite characters in the books i'll fully admit that and i actually liked this change because i
2: felt like it externalized a lot of his internal
1: conflict i'm sorry but
2: we just haven't gotten that from him i don't i don't know you're introspective we had two you know one dream scene one scene where he made, like, contact with the wolves, and then other than that, like, it's him and Egwene, and they're just on the run, well, that's like, you know? And, and we haven't gotten much from him while they've been on the run. That's the worst the arc
1: in, that, in episode three, definitely. Um, I agree. Apparently you know? Egwene. Yeah. And,
2: and in the in the second episode, it's like, what? What even is happening other than that one moment with the wolves? Well,
1: but, right. It's, it's definitely we haven't gotten into the full depth of, like, we don't understand what's going on with the wolves yet. We don't, you know, know fully how he's processing everything besides being in shock so, and feeling a lot of guilt. You know, but- bring
2: in what we got with him and his wife in the first episode, which was virtually nothing other than like the horror of him killing her. And then, you know, since then shit, like, you know, like there's there's not much else. Like the one big dream scene where he was sort of the, you know, having this central sort of introspective moment is just literally about you know him being haunted by the trauma of killing his wife as I've and had the it, wolves overlapping into that.
0: As I've had it explained to me by multiple people as I was literally saying all those exact same things over the last couple of days and some one of those people being Carlos is evidently in the books for That's a very great. long we're not wait, talking wait, wait, about wait, the books. No, let me finish. for a very long time if not the entire time all of his development and all of like the finger quotes active parts of his character are internal and they're like trying to struggle on a tv show how to show a character who where everything that happens happens behind his eyes and they may not be doing it well they may not be doing it well
1: so I, at all. here's i i have multiple thoughts again parent is not my favorite character including in the tv show and I, in fact i think parent storyline in episode three is the weakest storyline so far in the entire show i just thought it was done yeah just like cheaply i like the dream sequence but beyond that i was like okay like i mean i've read the book i know where this is going and i was still just like this is it just looks cheap they're running around in a desert
2: like away from cgi wolves and sometimes the wolves are actually there the we don't know the song scene can we like mention how that just was like that just happened like, hopefully we'll learn we more about this you group will. they're with yes. in the next there episode. There is a reason for
1: that. Sometimes you
2: have to be patient and accept that you don't know the answer can, yet. Right, can right. Can but we're spending time question? talking about it off of the sample of content we have. Can right. I so if we want to talk about question? the sample of content we have, the, it's, it's a pile of, like... The
1: first three yeah. ep- episodes, the most you get from Perrin, actually, I think, in terms of setting all this shit up, is in episode one with his interaction with Layla. I think you get a lot of implied conflict. You don't know what the tension is, but you know there is tension. Yes. Right. He knows says, that I love you, and she doesn't say right. that. Right. She says, I know. Like and fucking she's on, solo. on her own. Right. You get that he's a blacksmith. She's has to a get blacksmith. Pushed away. They work together. There's something going on there. Perrin, I think a lot of it is implied at this point. Which means that it, you have to really read into it, and so it may be things that you don't actually feel the impact of until you've seen it a few times or you have the context. A lot of people have been saying that they think uh, Layla miscarried. We'll see. Maybe that'll be a new thing. Maybe they've
0: I can see that
2: cut
1: that in, but Anyways, uh, I,
2: I think we're spending too much time on a character and a story that's just way underdeveloped.
1: Yeah, the, the, I mean, the point is that clearly. We have different opinions on this. And like, there's so much more in the show to this talk This is also, about. yeah, not, I think, even remotely the most interesting thing. Right. So, sorry, you talk about the song, and at first I thought, it took me a second, even though I just watched this episode for the second time, like, a, an hour ago. But, I, you were talking about the Tinkers, but I thought you were talking about this song, "Wheat for Menetherin, which I, was a scene that I liked. But I wasn't sure how people would react. No, no, to it. No, no! I was talking about when
2: they ran into. Oh, right, I
0: thought that might be the, the single best scene in all three episodes so far, where they it conveyed the mood and they all start singing Weep for Manethrin and then the end that they don't know what it means and Moraine explaining all of it to them and the differing reactions to her explanations and knowing that she's giving them all this information that they never had before that says so much about them and explained some of her comments before, like the old blood runs deep here, but also, and some of the conflicts with the Trollocs in the area and why other people from other regions don't communicate as much with Two Rivers, but also it, it set up, you know you just know that Maureen didn't tell them everything either because she didn't think it was important or she chose not to or she didn't know but it gave us this whole history to the entire world that wasn't there before in one short scene and it really both connected and separated all four of those young 20-somethings and so i thought and and the delivery and the acting some of the actors that kind of had been uneven up to that point i mean all six people in that scene if we don't count the horses and the horses did a great job. The horses
1: did a great job. It
0: was just I'm
1: so proud of the horses.
0: Perfect. Cinematically it was perfect See, in my opinion.
1: I I don't think actually I love this scene as much as you did, but I do really like the scene a lot and it's interesting because I've seen especially critics, kind of professional critics who maybe aren't actually like high fantasy fans, so that may be one of the big dividing things I'm noticing among the people who react to the show is do you like high fantasy or not? But they've struggled with the scene. They're like, oh, this is a useless exposition. I think that scene one has an emotional point too, which is it's Moraine telling the kids, you gotta step the fuck up because shit's only gonna get harder from here. Well, and also- you have it in you. But, I mean, like you said, it's like she's clearly revealing things that, she, you know, she hasn't revealed to them before. It's showing how ignorant they are. You know, they don't even know their own but history. It's, it's also this mm.
0: poignant moment of, it is, to a certain extent, it is their personal histories. They all learn this just by rote in childhood. It's just one of those songs that people sing. You learn from your parents, your grandparents, in the schoolyard. And so it's this history that Moraine and her warder don't share. That nobody outside of that little region, that little village, would know the song except though Moraine knows the The people mentioned in it, but it's this contrast of long history versus short history and the various levels of information. And Moraine will never know what it's like to be one of those little kids that grew up in the village. They all knew each other. Their shared history together versus the shared cultural history of the people. Does that make sense? And the contrast between the two is what got me.
1: This is a very big archaeologist anthropologist mood for you right now she that's what she studies she's museum studies
0: got a a degree yeah she just got a
1: master's degree and we're all very proud of her uh and she's doing a second one too so she she's off being go paleontology
0: go deep history woo
1: yeah but you you definitely pick up on on some of that and the explanation of what hits but you know no yeah i i mean i like the that scene and i'm curious luke how you responded to it
2: you know, I thought it was a great uh insight into further sort of world lore. You know, I I think I share a lot of the same sentiments as both of you. I think Catherine's point of like the power of it just being sort of like passed down culture and history that without them really knowing the significance of what the song meant, uh, you know, despite Going having the, the lyrics of the song. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of sort of real world examples you can you can draw and connect to it. But I, I think getting the history of the two rivers too, right, which is where these characters come from, and knowing sort of how deep that, that history is with the, the war with the Trollocs and the dark side and sort of seeing sort of the fighting spirit that, you know, has been carried in their people or, or displayed. And then also, you know, there's an element of foreshadowing because yeah. we get to the later city, We begin to see more of this history as it is today, and it starts to once again, like it did with their sort of ancestors, really haunt these characters and and come back for them.
0: Well, because remember, the the warder says that after the battle at Two Rivers, when, you know, Manathrin fell, those children that survived and their caretakers went there looking for food, for shelter, for help. And they found an entirely, you know, evil had won on the mountain and they went there looking for help for civilization. And they found a completely different type of evil, a very human, not divine, not menacing, just turning your back on other people type of evil. Right. And there was no help to be found. And we know inevitably that the kids then went back up the mountain and those were the ancestors to our current characters and whatnot. But there was definitely the echoing, which does also then make you wonder, you know, at the end of. These characters' journeys, will there be no help there either? Will they also just have to turn back around and go up the mountain? You don't have the problem resisting the urge to give spoilers Boy, that I have, Carl. But It, it,
2: literally, it literally sets up Shadar Lagoth, right? And this sort of conflict that wraps up the second episode and, and splits our characters apart onto different paths. I think that was sort of foreshadowing within itself. At least in like a very short term sense.
1: I found that really cool because that's not how it's done in the books. Is like Eridal, aka Shadar Lagoth, is part of that story in a way in the books. But it's not only revealed that story is is uh, Moraine does tell the story, but it's done in a different way. But it's also like Shadar Lagoth is clearly not the focus of it or sort of one of the focus of the helper fuse as it is in the show which i thought that was really interesting that they were setting that up to kind of then set the baseline for then the mythology of shadar Shil- Lagoth. like it, g- it was a great plant and payoff of like manaer theron uh was betrayed who betrayed them and then you find out later in the episode i thought that was such a great way of playing that mm-hmm.
0: well it was it was also implied that multiple people had agreed to come and that right shadar was the the principal bulk of where the help was supposed the, to come, but closest. it wasn't the only one. Right. Yeah, but there, I did have the question. So how much of the sort of, hmm, I can't think of the word I want to use, attack in Shadar Lagoth, uprising, the evilness coming up. I, I need to go back and rewatch it. How much of that was triggered by Matt picking up the knife?
2: Yeah, that, I was curious about that too. Because that if it was clear.
0: triggered by that, if this was the whole like touch nothing but the lamp moment, then it does say some interesting foreshadowing about his character.
1: So... (laughs) As opposed to just if
0: he can't resist stealing, that says something about his character, but it's not necessarily foreshadowing.
1: Matt's character is different in the show versus the books um, so far. He is actually way more complicated and interesting in the show than he is in book one and two of The Wheel of Time. What I can say about shadar Lagoth is that there's actually more nuances and complications in the book there's more layers to the evil there there is a ghost that you kind of get a hint at in the show but you don't fully see that you then see in the book uh that you don't fully see developed for i imagine budgetary reasons and like practical reasons in the show that was actually not a thing i noticed in the show until my most recent rewatch of episode two as i've seen these episodes multiple times that it seems like in the show matt triggered the big shadow thing coming at them um which i can name but i don't know if that is a spoiler or not it is portrayed differently it's portrayed as a fog in the books and i don't
0: fog would have been much cooler
1: right i i was surprised they didn't do that um i i guess i mean i'm i sure that i'm sure they actually probably tried it and they decided it didn't look cooler um i don't know i think in the show it's safe to say that matt triggered it by picking up the dagger and i would also say it's safe to say that he stole it because that kind of comes nat- naturally to him in the show as opposed to in the book i can say he does it kind of because he's a dumbass kid who is like oh here's a bunch of treasure oh look at this pretty knife i'm gonna pick it up I think there's a little more depth and you can understand his point of view a bit more in the show and why he picks it up, especially considering what I thought was interesting is they had him give Perrin the knife, which was a great scene, by the way, that does set up Perrin's arc somewhat and the, the question of the tool versus the weapon and what that means. Um, and I think on rewatches will be much more meaningful to y'all, as well as setting up you know further their friendship, Matt and Perrin, But then that, so Matt's just given up a knife, and so he then finds this one, and he's like, oh, I'm going to take it. And I guess that triggered the darkness. Yeah, there was definitely,
0: like, I felt four layers to that scene. One of which was, reasonably, he still wanted a weapon, and he'd given up his weapon, right? So, when he found a knife, and he had no knife, he reasonably took a knife, as he'd even pointed out about the previous knife, you know. You might need it to slice apples. I I mean, I carried a pocket knife for a long time, um, just, you know, in case you had nails or a hangnail or put screws into a wall. Carve apples um, clean before you carve up an apple with a pocket knife. And uh, I think there was an element of yes there. He's constantly hustling for money to take care of himself, but also his younger sisters. And it was a very shiny knife. There was the element of triggering the shadow that happened and i think there may be some foreshadowing about matt's character but i don't know if i'm right or wrong on that but i don't know if either of you noticed when i first saw it at first i could have sworn that the box was identical to the box that rand's dad pulls out when he pulls his knife out of only not like hidden and and i expected like an a duplicate sword. sword but it ended up being something completely different and i need to go back and look at it again it's to not- see If it's just like, oh, this is what knives and swords are kept in in this universe, generic sharp object box. Or if there is like deliberate echoing of like at some point in, his name is Tam?
1: Tam is the dad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In Tam's past, there is like some element, some connection to something similar somewhere else, or the old great cities, or things like that. But when I saw that box, the only other thing we have seen like that box was the box that Tam's sword was in, and it was that same moment. The shots were even lined up, except they were from different angles. One was from the left, and one was from the right, where you have pulled out from underneath this larger object that had been concealing it is this box with the symbol on top and the band. It's a pretty standard medieval box so I can understand if that the styling was not deliberately echoing the two and then you open it up and here's this bladed weapon that's got these decorative elements but it's still functionally a really great stabby thing um, <laughs> so I wasn't sure you know to what extent we're supposed to see connections there I wouldn't say parallels there's too many differences a functional sort of like steel and leather sword versus like a shiny golden bejeweled knife Two very different things, though both are very clearly stabby. Not all knives are stabby. I, I think that's an important point. That this knife was still good for stabbingness. Yeah. Still, definitely could kill someone with it easily. But I wasn't sure how much that was level there. So there was the release the shadow. There was the box echoing back Tam. There was the I need to steal things to take care of my family and stuff. And then there was also the like I no longer have a weapon. I need a weapon. Just like. You see in episode 3 when he, when Matt and Rand are walking, he's like, you know, you could give me your coat. And Rand just, like, laughs at him. But, you know, in so many ways, for a certain type of adversity, you know, being cold in the mountains, carving things up, you know, Matt is unprepared. He has this knife, but he never really uses the knife. And then he gives his original knife away because of that. But in a different sense, in terms of emotional adversity, in many ways, he's most prepared for being shit on by what's to come compared to the other three. Egwene comes from a prosperous business holding family, and she's conflicted about, oh, what is my future gonna be? I have multiple good options. Wah, wah, wah. You know, Rand's got some stuff going on, and he's sad about his mom and all, but he's also a Mr. I can do it. Look at how heroic I am. And I won't get farther into that because you've already heard me rant about that. And then Parent, he's, he's got conflicts. Lots of conflicts. But the conflicts are also, once again, like, not negative, and they all have extra money that they can chip in and pay for things for Matt and his sister. Whereas Matt has got this... Matt's
1: the poor one. Yeah, he's I mean, clearly literally. the poor one. And
0: he's hustling as hard as he can. Yeah. And you know that people make fun of his mom and his dad in the village. And he's had to put up with all of that. And he's constantly trying to save his sisters. And he literally is the one who saves his sisters. You know,
1: that, that's those are things that I hadn't necessarily thought about that I think are really interesting. That, one, it makes me sad to think, but you're totally right, that people totally make fun of his parents. And that must suck. Mm-hmm. just hearing people rag on how his parents are like oh your mom's the town drunk and your dad's the town whore also yeah but that that he is also more prepared because he I mean, has dealt with more like financial adversity he's i mean he's the rogue that's luke you mentioned that earlier a lot of the characters fall into kind of classic D classes and and matt is the rogue character and oh, i love i love barney harris's performance it's sad for people who don't know He's been recast for season two. Um, we don't know why Barney left. He brought so much and pathos. I, I, yeah, I wish great. him the best. I imagine it was something serious. I'm not going to speculate. But that he has been recast. Um, and that I think he's doing an amazing job. And I I wish him the best. And it's simple as that. The dagger, I don't feel like I can comment on any of that without giving spoilers. What I can say is that I think the design, I didn't fully appreciate it. On my first two watches, uh, <laughs> but on the third, I did that. Like the design is creepy. Like it both is beautiful, but it also like when you look at it is like it's oh, it's creepy. definitely a murder blade. Yeah, like it, is it doesn't. Stabby. It looks the like, curviness wrong. of the blade. like it doesn't look yeah. like it's like. I saw
0: it. My immediate thought was like sacrificial rice. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I gotta the, I gotta go the put ruby, the leaves
2: on the, the ruby detail, the curve, the length. It's very particular. It's not, you know, remotely combat oriented.
0: It's a slicing knife. You slice throats. You don't stab and you don't, you know, flay. It's definitely for killing
2: things. So, one
1: last thing I definitely want to talk about is I've asked you both characters you liked and you both talked about this character and he was definitely one of my favorite characters and is just very charismatic and sexy in the show. Let's talk about Tom Marilyn.
2: Oh, he's awesome! Yeah, in episode three, now he's 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 like him and Eve. Did I say that? Neneve? Nine Eve, Nine are like you know the standouts for me up to this point in the show. And exactly he, for me, he you know only having this one episode appearance uh, is like a rock star. And in, in, in the moments we get with him,
1: literally that it's it's interesting because in the books, I mean, I feel like the people listening to this don't care that much. But in the books, he's like kind of a classic, like old bard character he's kind of like he's spry but and he's a ladies man but he's got like a big like wispy like very French mustache and he's you know he's colorful and playful and, and world weary but he isn't as like sexy and gritty and like a rock star like he is in the show and I love this take on it where like he just has that vibe like he has a roguish vibe himself oh he melts panties he just melts
0: panties left and right I mean particularly the final scene where he's like we all gotta do it sometimes and he lets Matt rob the body but then he's also like but now you gotta bury him and there's there's nothing about this character that is not Story-wise, great. And then the way it's being executed, props to the cinematographer, the director, and the actor. Because I would throw panties at him all day long.
2: You know, I, and he's a he's clearly, like, you get you do get these moments where you, you see him as a deeply principled character. So, like, this very respectful character that you want to root for and have good things happen to. And then you also, like, just in, in brief dialogue, but, you know, maybe the more extensive scene with Matt you get a lot of history I, to this character too like there's you you can see a lot of well life traveled. behind him yeah. right but you, and you get the sense of the the life he's lived too I just, uh, which i think is a very great example of just like brief yet full and powerful character storytelling.
0: Yeah, as much as as so much about him is left as a mystery, and as much as we don't know about all of the characters, and we're definitely supposed to like some of the other characters, this character was the only one where if I was, like, suddenly forced to go out adventuring in this world, right, and I had to, like, pick an ally with the information that we have so far, he's the only one that, even though we know, like, almost nothing about him, if you haven't read the books he was the only one that I personally meet in the real world, Catherine Albert, was like, uh, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't, like, kill me. Or if he did, it would be absolutely necessary. And, like, he would prevent me from dying in a fire. Like, even other characters we're supposed to see as unequivocally good. Like, Nynaeve, who's great. Yeah. But I definitely feel like there could be motivations, there could be pressures, where she would, like, sacrifice me for the greater good. Without me agreeing to it, um, or if it was I don't know helping if this her is village, or not, she would totally kill someone for a village, and not because they're attacking the village, but because that was what needed to be done to do it. If and you're from her, her village, though,
1: him. she will stab for you until the yeah. End but of see, She's I'm not from bear. her village. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm not. That's that. That's I, it. Depends on
2: the dialogue there. I, I actually Nineveh, disagree yeah. based off what we've seen. You know, with Marilyn's character, you do get this moment where he sort Tom of Tom Marilyn is his name. Tom right. Marilyn, right? I guess we call him Tom. Merlin, he, if you he, hear that.
0: He, he, yeah, that was he, very clear. Merlin, that came right, right. In, after he was done singing. I was like, right. ah.
2: So he kills Dana in, in an instant, essentially. Like he hears where she's aligned, what she wants to do, and boom, it's a snap decision without even her knowing his presence. Yeah, right? the dark friends so, are
0: inherently like no, nihilist. But,
2: but Nynaeve, on the other on the other hand, yes, she makes a decision to like strike at the ward, uh, but ultimately, you know, she's gone to these incredible extents and reaches out of protection of the people she's around and cares about. So to me, she stands out as sort of our character of virtue in the story, right? That's going to be sort of this morally steadfast, watching over other characters, sacrificing herself, you know, and and I think we saw this sort of in in the, the great sort of like fight and massacre scene in the first episode as well. Whereas Marilyn, you know besides your suggestion certainly we know very little about him explicitly we do know he's light aligned or light sympathetic and i i you know he's obviously very principled but it does seem that he's like still fundamentally objective oriented it's right? the kill
0: baby hitler phenomenon i think naive might potentially we need more info be a more good with a capital g person than tom but I'm just talking about like trustworthy who I would want to have my back right. least likely to kill me. Sure, sure. Or sacrifice. Sacrifice being the keyword here, not just kill.
1: I don't know. Tom I, did I, steal I still Matt's disagree. purse. Right. So I, I I I think that's debatable, but, but I, they weren't. I would say yet. actually what uh-huh. I will say, Tom and Nynaeve, I do feel like would be the two people I would trust most to have Absolutely. my back. Up there with, with probably Egwene. Like I was gonna say, oh. yeah, Rand and Egwene are probably about equivalent for me. Or the ward. I mean, honestly, no. With the I could see Egwene Matt,
0: panicking at least where she is in her character development now I don't know. and trying is, to make the right choice. Na- and even to and Tom, choice. I think, are the
1: most competent and seem the most like they have like right. their head on their shoulders. Yeah. Moraine, I love, but like clearly has her own like motives. Agenda, yeah. right?
2: Well, it's, it's important Egwene to highlight annoys too, annoys that me she out of me our so much three pairs of you know the band of six that got split up at the end of episode two. You know, Tom and Nynaeve have swooped in to be sort of guides or. Or the sort of saviors of two of those pairs, uh, Nynaeve even for you know. They're definitely
0: no, the third war. pair has their own. I mean, okay. No, but
2: the, the those like the traveler band of people sure, and the younger guy in that group sure, but we just haven't gotten that yet.
0: No, that's not even who I'm talking about at all. Okay. The wolves. Yeah, I mean, it seems obvious that Perrin has magical okay. wolf power, right? We're, yeah,
1: we yeah have I, not, I feel like that's not a spoiler at this We have point. not personified these characters. The Literally. You don't know the depth of it yeah. at this point, and so I would not explain the details, each... but Perrin clearly
2: has magical wolf well, powers. And Egwene pretty explicitly, you know, suggests that the wolves are the ones who guided them to safety.
0: She and they explicitly licked his,
2: does. the yes.
0: wolves healed his trollic poisoning when everyone's like, oh, only an Aes Sedai can heal a trollic, and then, like, the wolf does it, so I'm just saying, like, there was somebody for everyone, there was Nynaeve, there was Tom, and there were the wolves, and arguably, the wolves have done the most so far for their duo.
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess debatably, that's true. Uh, it, it, it the wolves is, even it's led them to, to, to the travelers, right. to the other humans. I was going to say wolves. you you wouldn't when you think about like the full depth of what the wolves have done. That's that's definitely probably true. I mean God, I green, want to pack a wolf on my side. It begs
0: the question: Were the wolves coming down the mountain at the very beginning of episode one because the Trollocs were chasing them down? Which is what Tam asserted is that something's driving them down, or were they being drawn down to Perrin's blossoming abilities, or so, both?
1: I don't know how the show is going to answer this, but I can tell you in the books. That's been a common fan theory for a long time, and no one, because that is straight out of the books, that wolves have been coming down the mountain, and no one knows why. It's never been confirmed as far as I know, so maybe uh, that could be, maybe they'll answer that in the show. I don't know. But I think that makes a lot of sense, As if the wolves have been attracted to Perrin, whatever's awakening inside him has been pulling them Because all four
0: of them are having their own magical awakening, but they're of different kinds.
1: So I'm going to take a, a hard right turn towards kind of the stuff we were talking about earlier with Tom and Matt, that talking craft for a second, one of the things that I, especially in rewatch, found really interesting was how the whole structure of the episode and kind of all these different individual scenes were like built to challenge Matt. So not only the very fact of their adventure, like you talked about Catherine, that like he's kind of mm-hmm. most built to survive this and that he's like clearly a survivor and he will like do what he has to do to survive. Like he says, will Begs steal or borrow, or whatever he has to do to survive to get to get back to the two rivers, but you know you have the scene where Dana, the dark friend, monologues about how you know you're born in the dirt, and everyone who's around you sees you live and grow up in the dirt and like to the dirt you return. And if you leave, like, that's a miracle, basically, because, you know, suddenly people don't know the dirt you came from and you they focus on his face during that. Mm. They hold a shot on his face. And I I think that's so interesting that, like, she's not only characterizing herself, but her whole speech is getting down to a lot of the core of who he is in this TV show that he's like he carries a lot of this shame because of his poverty and, and his upbringing that he is like. Maybe there is an escape for him in this world beyond, but that he are... doesn't necessarily—he's not gonna like reach for it either.
0: I—I feel there's two elements to that. Oh, uh,
1: and more
2: pie.
0: Decorations are done. More pie in a second. The two elements, and then I'll get up to go deal with pie, and Luke can have his say. Is—is is one? I mean, I said this last night, you know, because there's the debate. If you haven't spoiled it for yourself, who is the dragon reborn? And if this was a brand new IP. Brand new franchise. Okay, and it was coming out in 2021. It would 100% be Matt. That would be the obvious choice. But it's not. It's 1990, so I don't think it's that. But then the other thing is, is that I really feel a lot is being set up for him to have some sort of great betrayal of the other characters and then because it's high fantasy he'll probably have a redemption arc eventually and come back and like save things in the climactic final battle but i just i have this feeling that matt is going to at some point betray the others or turn towards the dark for at least a little while or make some sort of questionable choice out of like survivalship
1: the other thing i wanted to talk about with matt And kind of the craft of it is not only you have that monologue with Dana and how you can have a character, you know, a side character, a a single episode character monologue about themselves and have it then be essentially a dark reflection of one of the main characters of them kind of reflect that character's arc so that the subtext of the scene is taking over and we feel that much more emotionally connected to it. Um, But we also have that with Tom, that Tom, the fact that he's so roguish in this and the fact that, you know, he is sort of, working his way, uh, you know, around the continent, is fighting to survive, but is doing it kind of naturally, you know, he embodies a lot of what Matt theoretically could become in sort of a a good time, like, oh, you know, maybe you could be this sexy, world-weary, gleaming musician traveling around, you know, with a code of honor, but also still, like, you know, some thievery in you, and that Tom is there to challenge Matt and to be like, are you going to hold to your morals or are you going to give them all up? Mm-hmm. Are, are are you going to be a rogue with a heart of gold or are you just going to be a rogue? And I think that's really interesting that the whole episode, really, I think when you get down to it, that whole plot, as much as Rand does feature and it, it has a very important part, I think is built around Matt's character and how to develop him and where his arc is going.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think a fascinating thing about Matt to this point is we've gotten so much personal buildup and background to him. We've gotten character development already in a brief amount of time. And yet, you know, out of the four characters where a sort of central conflict for all of them is which one of them, however many of them, not necessarily even just one, is this sort of like ancient power reincarnated. We haven't seen any semblance of extra human abilities amongst him, you know, within him, right? Like Rand has this moment of great strength. Perrin and the wolves, Egwene and her magic and connection to sort of the one power. Matt, it's nothing as of now. Instead, we just get this very conflicted person who lives and struggles out of desperation and has these habits born out of it as well, who loves and looks after his sisters and his parents. And amongst that, amongst this lack of special ability, we get this sense that his character is as morally and deterministically important as any as the other three, you know? And oftentimes he's he's taking on this more forward-speaking role where he's navigating the world or telling stories or starting the song amongst the four of them, right? We talked about the song scene earlier. So I, I love that about him. He's been fascinating. I'm excited to see where his character's going to go from here. I think he's going to be someone who constantly is dealing with these uh, sort of conflict of obligation or duty between his family, you know, his companions, and then his greater sort of responsibility in the world that he might discover. And I think it's interesting that he's already had this somewhat mentor figure be inserted into his life, and it's obviously going to be with him at least in the short term in Maryland. So we'll see where it goes from here.
1: All right, well... Thank you for joining me on this uh, thrown together podcast. And I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to it. Please drop a review. If you enjoyed this or any other episodes, consider donating to the Patreon. Follow me on social media. All of this will be linked below, including a link to the Amazon prime page for the wheel of time. I encourage you to check it out. I'm excited to see how it develops. I think it'll probably be the next big epic fantasy show. Hell yeah. And... Until then, until next time, I've been your host, Carl Albert, and this has been PopCraft.